not sure that I'm going to um, change any skeptics' minds. In fact, my presentation may very well reinforce um, skeptics and very, very skeptical opinion. Very, very briefly, I'm going to talk about this rather strange yet potentially important European human rights instrument, the European Social Charter. Um, I'm going to discuss its potential and its limitations. I'm going to make the argument that it potentially could play an interesting role in um, framing de debate and governmental responses to issues of irregular migration and the entitlements of irregular migrants. I'm going to also point out the very substantial limitations that may prevent the social charge from playing such a role and the the way in which the limitations that may constrain the social charge from playing a role reflect embedded tensions in um, international human rights frameworks relating to social rights and embedded tensions in what I've called elsewhere the um, the sort of the European social constitutionalization. Okay, that's all a bit of a mouthful for an opening. Um, so let me let me let me let me let me start at the very beginning. Um, I mentioned this idea of European social constitutionalization. Legally speaking, um, most national legal systems and most national constitutional systems going going back to sort of the modern constitutional era, beginning with the American and French revolutions in the 18th century haven't been particularly interested or concerned with establishing systematic normative structures, systematic constitutional rights regimes relating to access to social services, um, social protection, other forms of redistributionary mechanisms. And so if you look at the US Constitution, there's absolutely nothing there related governing any sort of access to social welfare, social entitlements, education, social protection, and so on. There's been sort of court decisions over the years that have indirectly opened up some avenues, um, which we can discuss later, perhaps. But in general, the idea of, 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 of a right of access to social services for vulnerable individuals or vulnerable groups hasn't historically formed part of the legal picture. I say historically because there were attempts to change this. The, the, the Constitution of the Weimar Republic in 1918 had um, provisions written in by very prominent lawyers associated with the Social Democratic Party in Germany who tried to build in a sort of constitutional concept of, 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 uh, of, of social state, the German idea of the social state, whereby all individuals should be in, entitled to enjoy certain basic labour rights, certain basic social security rights, and so on. You know, that individuals should have a, a legal entitlement, a constitutional entitlement, to enjoy the benefits of the Bismarckian welfare state. Um, and from... The, the Weimar Constitution on. In continental Europe, there has been a legal tradition of attempting to, um, to, to build in this idea of, 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 of an individual right of, of access to social services, to labour protection and so on, into national constitutional frameworks. I emphasise continental Europe because that tradition is almost completely absent from the Anglo-American world. Okay. It's also a tradition that's more associated with very well-developed constitutional regimes in the sense of um, regimes featuring very extensive constitutional regulation and regimes that rely an awful lot on legal 
constitutional standards developed by very powerful constitutional courts. So, for example, interestingly enough, the Nordic countries, even though politically they have, of course, a, a very developed notion of a sort of social state, um, their legal constitutional structures are actually quite like the UK and other and the Anglo-American countries in not having this very well-developed idea of sort of fundamental legal entitlements to access services. Um, but if you look at the sort of French constitutional framework, the German constitutional framework, Portuguese, Italian, and so on, this, this idea that the state is committed to ensuring access to sort of certain basic forms of social provision is, is floating around there in those national constitutional frameworks, even though it's very underdeveloped. And, and in another paper I've written, I call this the sort of... Um, European social constitutionalism. This finds expression at the pan-European level, or at least I should say this initially found expression in the sort of world, the realm of international human rights law with the European Social Charter, in, um, which, was, which was drawn up in 1960, 1961. You'll have all heard, I'm sure, of the European Convention of Human Rights, the ECHR, much hated by conservative politicians, um, a hugely influential human rights standards, a set of hugely influential civil and political rights standards, protecting things like freedom from torture, um, freedom of expression, religious freedom, equality rights, and so on. The European Social Charter was intended to be the social sister instrument of the European Convention on Human Rights. The European Convention was to protect basic civil, political, democratic rights. The European Social Charter was supposed to guarantee access to basic social rights, including labour rights. So it was always supposed to be the sister instrument of the European Convention of Human Rights. Both these instruments were drawn up within the framework of the Council of Europe in Strasbourg. This has nothing to do with the EU, though, like everything else in this area, the position is now much more complicated. But initially, nothing to do with the EU. The Council of Europe standard... Council of Europe framework, European Social Charter, intended to sort of serve at the sort of regional human rights framework as a sort of international manifestation of this European social constitutionalism idea. It was the very first international socio-economic rights instrument. Soon afterwards, the UN agreed to the International Covenant of Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, ICESCAR, and the terminology, the acronym-loaded terminology of international human rights lawyers. Um, the Social Charter has therefore been in existence for 50, 60 years. It is a relatively obscure instrument for a number of different reasons. Um, first of all, its provisions are complicated. Most international human rights agreements are quite straightforward. You have a treaty that sets out various rights which states undertake to guarantee to everyone in their jurisdiction. So the UN, International Covenant, Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights says everyone has the right to education, everyone has the right to social security, everyone has the right to, um, you know, to work, everyone has the right to decent employment, adds a fairly general qualifying clause subject to necessary restrictions. And that's what states sign up to. And these rights are universally applicable. There's everyone within the jurisdiction of the state is supposed to gain access to those rights. But they're couched at quite an abstract level. The European Social Charter doesn't adopt that approach. 
It is a much more specific and detailed in its provisions. But at the same time, it doesn't set out to establish a universal rights framework in the same way. To start with, states can sign up to some elements of the European Social Charter, but don't have to sign up to the full package. I'm not going to go into detail on this. It's known as the a la carte option. I'm not going to go into detail on all of this. My paper, which I've just circulated, which is a book chapter coming out in a publication edited by Mark Friedland and Catherine Costello from this university um, later this year, that sets it all out in excruciating detail. Okay? Um, I apologise to the editors twice for sending them such a boring chapter. They kept on telling me it wasn't boring. Um, they obviously have a much higher boredom threshold than I do. But all the detail is there in the paper. Right? They wanted something really legally you know, tight and technical. They got it. Um, so if you need to look up any of the technicalities, it's all floating there in the paper. But first of all, you had this a la carte mechanism where states could sign up to certain rights. Okay? A second problem with the European Social Charter was that its status has always been slightly uncertain, the status of the instrument taken as a whole. The European Convention on Human Rights has become unique in the world of international human rights law in that it, has, it that is a set of legal standards which actually have acquired tangible, substantial content. That are, in, that are interpreted and applied by a court, European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, in a manner that makes them usable and workable by national courts. That means the European Convention on Human Rights is unique in the world in establishing a very detailed now set of human rights norms that can be used by lawyers to fight for and get tangible outcomes for clients. Okay? So if you go to a court in, say, the Netherlands, and you can go, well, you know, my client, let's say my irregular migrant client, just to make things more tangible, my regular migrant client has been, um, you know, subject to certain abuses by the police. And this is contrary to the UN Convention on Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And this is contrary to the UN Convention on, the, on Civil and Political Rights. And this is contrary to the UN Convention on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. And the court in the Netherlands will be going, oh, how very interesting. Yes, fascinating, fascinating. These are all really vague standards. We don't know what they mean. And then the lawyer will say, yes, it's also contrary to um, Article 3 and Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, as interpreted by the European Court of Human Rights in Sillardin versus Netherlands, 1978. In paragraph 53, you'll see a direct application of hard case law standards to a set of facts, very similar to the situation of my client. And the Dutch court will wake up from its coma and go, right, okay, now we're talking something substantial. That means, in hard practical legal terms, the, um, the lawyer and the client will have a very good chance of walking out of the courtroom with a result. Okay? And that makes up for a world of difference compared to the other international human rights standards. The European Social Charter, even though it was always intended to be the European Convention on Human Rights sister instrument, has not acquired that status. Okay? States have been reluctant to view it as establishing the same type of hard, fixed legal standards as arise under the ECHR. Okay. The, they, they tend to view social rights as involving big aspects of national policy, which, is, which they do, that should be left effectively to be regulated by national governments. They tend to view it as something that's not really the province of courts and lawyers. Okay. And this is quite, this is quite a common understanding 
in national legal systems as well. National courts are often reluctant to apply the European Social Charter. As a result, it sort of has a sort of twilight existence. Its twilight existence takes different shapes in different legal systems. Okay? And the European Social Charter has almost no impact within the UK's legal system. Okay, if you you know if you if you stand up before a UK court and say, well, my client has rights under the European Social Charter, the judge will simply look at his wristwatch or his phone these days and sort of basically count down the seconds which you're wasting your client's fees. Um, that's different in other legal systems in in in, in Netherlands, in Finland, in. in in other countries, the position is, is more different. The, the social charter has greater legal status. But in general, its legal status remains uncertain, varying, contingent, very much dependent on, how, on whether individual courts and judges pick up, the, choose to take the social charter seriously. Even its political impact, and international human rights standards often have more political impact than they do legal impact, its political impact is also very mixed. A lot depends on whether national trade unions, national NGOs, national political parties, national administrations pick up and use these standards. So in certain countries, the requirements of the European Social Charter have considerable impact. They shape national policy, they, they steer um, sort of trade union agitation, NGO agitation. They're applied by municipalities, government organizations, as a, and regard it as a set of binding standards, normatively, if not legally. Um, in other states, that just doesn't, people don't pay attention to it. In the UK, for example, the trade unions are regularly referred to the European Social Charter. It often features in trade union literature, trade union campaigning work, um, but outside of the trade unions. There's very little NGO involvement with the social charter. It's not something that tends to be cited or invoked in campaigning work. Again, reflecting its shadowy status. So the social charter's status is, 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 is uncertain and contested. Um, there have been recent developments which have begun to change the situation to some extent. Um, there is now an EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. I apologise, by the way, for all the non-lawyers in the room, which may be everyone, about the massive profusion of charters and covenants and treaties, which all make this incomprehensible from the outside. But there's now, a, just to, if the European Social Charter wasn't enough, there's the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, um, which is a much potentially a very important legal instrument because it's a set of fundamental rights standards that must be applied in the framework of EU law. All EU law must conform with the fundamental rights set out in, the, in this EU charter. There are elements of the EU charter that take rights from the social charter and build it into the EU legal framework. Labour rights, rights to social security, rights to social assistance, rights to healthcare are all taken the in some cases, the text is taken directly from the European Social Charter, fed over into the EU framework. And that's significant because that is potentially very hard law. As you may be aware, and as UKIP would certainly like to make everyone aware, UK EU law is superior to national law. EU law legally is the ultimate trump card. You know, you, you, you play at a trump card, you win. Okay? Um, so therefore, the fact that the EU Charter sort of 
transfers some social charter standards into the framework of EU law is potentially significant. Though it's early days yet. This, this EU charter is only legally binding for the last couple of years. And its, its significance remains a source of considerable contestation and debate, both politically and legally. Another reason why the European Social Charter has acquired greater prominence in recent years has been um, the, that there is something like a case law developing under it. There is a committee, European Commission on Social Rights, of which I'm a member, that is charged with interpreting and applying the provisions of the European Social Charter. Okay? Our job is to interpret the provisions and to assess whether states are complying with the Charter. This is a job the Commission has performed since the early 1960s. It mainly, how it mainly performs that job is that states submit national reports. We assess national reports, interpret the social charter's provisions, decide whether states are complying with their obligations under the social charter. We make conclusions indicating how states, whether states are conforming or not conforming. Okay? Now, that national reporting process has had very, very, very mixed results. Um, it's been going since the 1960s. It can exercise a considerable influence over national law and policy, our conclusions, if our conclusions are taken up and applied at national level. If our conclusions are not taken up and applied, they're effectively a dead letter. To give you an illustration where our conclusions have not been taken up and applied, the um, UK has been found to be in breach of the social charter dating back to the 1980s because of um, anti-trade union legislation relating to the ban on secondary picketing in the UK. Um, our conclusions in respect to the UK have changed nothing politically for 40 years, nor are they likely to change anything at all for the foreseeable future. However, in other contexts, our um, conclusions have influenced policy debate. Okay? So, for example, in the context of irregular migrants, our conclusions on, in respect of their entitlement, which I'll talk about in a moment, to gain access to social assistance in certain circumstances has played a role in debates on these issues in the Nordic countries. And at the moment, it's playing quite a significant role in debates on these issues in the Netherlands. But I'll come back to that. There is also what's known as a collective complaint procedure. Bear with me about all the legalese. Just bear with me. I'm nearly finished all this, sort of telling you about all the framework bit. Um, there is this collective complaints procedure whereby certain states have signed up to a special protocol that allows NGOs, trade unions, employers' organisations to bring what are known as collective complaints to us, alleging a violation of fundamental social rights. Uh, it will come as no surprise to you that the UK has not signed up to this um, collective complaints protocol. Um, but quite a few countries have, 17 states of the Council of Europe, including France, Italy, Netherlands, Sweden, Finland, Croatia, Greece, um, Czech Republic quite recently, um, Belgium, um, the, 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 the list goes on. Okay, so quite a few of the, of the Western European states in particular have signed up to this collective complaint protocol. And this has allowed us to develop uh, some sort of case law, some sort of more detailed reasoning, um, which again has sort of expanded, enhanced the profile of the social charter, allowed us to develop our case law, and allowed us to comment more directly on the situations in national law. This has had very significant implications in respect of irregular migrants, but I'll come back to that. So in other words, to summarise where we are so far, European social charter an uncertain legal instrument, an, an attempt to translate the, the idea of European social constitutionalism into sort of the language 
of international human rights law, very limited success. Um, its impact varies from country to country and from legal system to legal system. Its impact and its profile has considerably increased in recent years, but only in certain countries, okay, whose legal systems and whose political systems are, are open for different reasons to the influence of the social charter, to the views of the European Committee on Social Rights, in contrast to other states, such as the UK, which, whose political and legal systems aren't open to that, to that influence for various reasons. So, how does this all relate to um, the issue of irregular migrants? The European Social Charter is really fascinating from the point of view of migration, because when it was drawn up, in 1960, it was the, one of the very first instruments at pan-European level to try and engage with the issue of migrant workers and their families using the language of rights. Okay, and it predated, it was just after the Treaty of Rome, and of course initially there were far more countries signed up to the Social Charter than were signed up to the EU the EEC as was. In, in fact, to this day, the social charter includes, there are 46 countries signed up to the social charter, including Russia, Turkey, Ukraine, um, Moldova, Azerbaijan, Serbia, Iceland, Norway, etc., etc., etc. So the, the, the reach of the countries covered by the European social charter is much wider than the EU framework. And from the beginning, the social charter was intended to sort of... Um, set out as part of the social rights framework, was, was intended to try and structure the rights of migrants up moving within Europe using the language of fundamental rights. So the Social Charter contains some very, very interesting provisions. I say interesting because, frankly, they very much reflect the concerns of policymakers in the late 1950s, early 60s, rather than necessarily the concerns of policymakers nowadays. But it contains some very interesting provisions relating to the rights of migrant workers moving between states which had ratified the Social Charter. Initially, all the Western European states, now all the European states within the Council of Europe zone. Article 18 of the Social Charter, for example, um, requires all states to liberalise the rules re regulating access of migrant workers to employment, um, to make administrative procedures um, easy um, and to, um, to effectively reduce barriers to migrant workers moving between states that had ratified the European Social Charter. So it was, if you, weigh up, if you, if you want, a sort of prototype to the idea of free movement of workers as subsequently developed in EU law. Article 19 contains a whole set of provisions relating to family members, right, and to the rights of migrant workers and their families. There's a right, for example, of family unification, which is framed in very, very broad terms. Um, there's an, Article 19 also contains a generalised commitment on states to combat xenophobia and propaganda against migrant workers, which is often overlooked. Um, it has very interesting provisions in relation to migrant workers being able to, and their families being able to access education in their native languages. Um, also, the social charter in general contains a set of provisions relating to equal access to social security, social assistance, health care, and other provisions. 
So in other words, it contains a set of fundamental rights standards related to migrant workers, which are quite extensive. Okay, and we're the first attempt to sort of frame these entitlements using the language of fundamental rights. However, there's, an, there's a built-in tension into the framework of the social charter, which, which links right back to the subject of the, of, 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 of the talk last week, as, as summarised by Sarah, which is that all these migrant workers' rights are set out in universalist terms, supposed to apply to every migrant worker, you know, moving between boundaries in the, in the, in the social charter zone, <coughs> Council of Europe zone, okay? And the language of the social charter in general speaks of everyone, their universal human rights. However, the appendix of the social charter, the very, very end of the instrument, puts in a bit of a kicker clause because it says that the personal scope of these rights is confined to, first of all, nationals of ratifying states. So these rights, which are set out using universalist language, their scope is actually confined to nationals of charter states. In other words, no national states outside the European zone gets any rights under the social charter. And secondly, only workers lawfully, on, sorry, not just workers, only migrants lawfully present are working regularly gain social charter rights. Now that's an interesting distinction. Lawfully present are working regularly. Okay. Now, that's in a, that I think nicely encapsulates the sort of tension that exists in international human rights frameworks in relation to the rights of migrant workers, because these universalist claims, the, the universalist language of human rights, suddenly, when you get to this sort of personal scope restriction, suddenly becomes narrowed by the sort of commutarian national territorial-centred requirements. Okay? So you have the sort of universalist language of fundamental rights suddenly becomes um, telescoped into quite a narrow set of entitlements which maintains the rights of states to maintain their territorial control to determine who is lawful and, and who is not. Okay? Having said that, the rights framework within the social charter is quite extensive. Um, for those lucky migrant workers who come within its narrow scope. Okay. Interestingly, this is one area where the, 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 the very explicit provisions in the social charter tend to be the most ignored by states. It's our area of maximum nonconformity, are the rights of migrant workers, the ones we've set out, where there is unequal treatment, right, left, and center in all sorts of aspects, national social security, social assistance systems, and so on. Okay? So this is an area where the social charter has some interesting things to say, narrowed by the personal scope, narrowed also by the fact that states just are often simply not complying with their formal requirements. Okay? And we can talk about that. But, but it, it, it's interesting because it shows that even in a sort of a human rights framework structured in using the universal language of fundamental rights, you do have this sort of the, 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 the tension, the demand for sort of territorial linkage between migrants and the territory of a particular state, the demand that states be able to maintain their control of who enters and so on, the, the entitlement of states to sort of maintain access to control who benefits from 
their redistribution of social security, social assistance, healthcare systems is, is built into this universalist framework. But if you read the social charter, it's built in in quite a sneaky way. Um, you will read the entire instrument, you know, the very high-flown language of fundamental rights. It goes on for around 30 pages, you know, wonderful human rights language. And then at the very, very end, you have this really technical appendix, which is full of like small and technical qualifiers. And buried in the middle of these highly technical provisions is that kicker restricting the personal scope of the charter. So it's, 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 it's in the text of the instrument, it's quite interesting in this respect. Now, keeping one eye on time, um, I want to talk about, very briefly, um, a set of, 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 of legal issues we've had to deal with that really highlight some of these tensions within the human rights framework and specifically within the social charter framework. Um, one of the very first collective complaints that came to the European Committee on Social Rights, um, Collective Complaint 14 in, in 2003 from France, was brought by the, an NGO coalition, Federation of International Human Rights Leagues, and a related to irregular migrant access to the French healthcare system. Okay? And in particular, the complaint related to extra charges imposed upon irregular migrants using French healthcare facilities and the exclusion of um, children um, and others, other categories of irregular migrants from access to the universal medical healthcare scheme in, 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 in France. Okay, this has been, as many of you will be aware, a, a, a major political issue in France for some time. Um, the French government, simply in response to the NGO complaint, said, they're irregular migrants. Most of the people we're talking about aren't from a European state. So they're, they fall outside the territorial scope. Of the, they, they fall outside the territorial scope. But in any case, you know, they're not, you know, they're not lawfully present. These people are not lawfully present, which means they should fall outside the scope of the social charter. So the social charter and this wonderful universal social rights instrument has no application in this case at all. Okay. The committee, in what has been described, is a controversial decision. I need to be very careful when I sit, talk about all of this. I, I, there's, a, there's a particular point in time where I sort of have to maintain, where I have to start using very formal, boring language as a member of the committee and, and not say interesting things. But the, um, the, the committee took the view um, in response, however, that there was a tension built into the framework of, of social charter between these sort of its universalist aspirations, so to speak, and its restricted personal scope. Um, and that this tension had to be resolved by looking at first principles. And effectively, the committee said, look, this is an instrument, as its language makes clear, that's intended to protect you in dignity, to ensure that everyone gets entitled to a certain minimum level of access to basic social services and health care and so on, so on, so on, to protect human dignity. So the committee, in quite a radical, and I'm told by the Dutch government quite recently, unprecedented move in international human rights law, um, chose to read the express terms of the appendix to the social charter in a way that, shall we say, um, went against the grain of the explicit language of the charter. Effectively, the committee said we're going, the, the, the language of the appendix, which is a bolt-on addition to the main text, has to be read down and narrowed. Okay? That the social charter does establish an entitlement 
um, a bare minimum entitlement, admittedly, but nevertheless an entitlement of everyone in France, including irregular migrants, to get access to a certain minimum basic level of health care. Okay? This was controversial. The French government was. Um, French government wasn't very pleased with the legal reasoning. Um, NGOs, trade unions, campaigning groups in France were delighted. Um, it helped to produce a shift in French law, okay? not least because the judgment, our, our decision, I wasn't a member of the committee at the time, but the committee's decision began to be picked up and applied in the social security, in, in certain, not social security, in certain administrative tribunals in, 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 in France. Commission in a subsequent series of decisions from the Netherlands and Belgium has held to that case law. Um, 2008, Defence of Children International versus Netherlands, access of um, unaccompanied children barred from, by Dutch law from access to social housing. Okay, very clear, explicit provisions in Dutch law restricting access to um, emergency shelter provisions. Um, emergency shelter for unaccompanied children and other specific categories of, of irregular migrants. But in this case was focusing on unaccompanied children. Um, the committee again took the view that the social charter had to be read as establishing a, an entitlement to a sort of bare level of, of, of access to, in this case, shelter. Okay. Um, it, has, it has reiterated that in a subsequent Defence of Children International um, case in respect of Belgium, where it also mentioned we've had healthcare from France, housing in the Netherlands, the Belgian case also, the committee also said this also applies to a bare minimum level of social assistance. And the committee has now formally stated this in its, in its jurisprudence and is monitoring state compliance with this requirement. Um, very recently, there's been another collective complaint that has come in from the Netherlands, again relating to social assistance um, and housing access. The committee has, it's still hearing the case, so I can't say much about it, but the um, committee has sort of issued what's known as a sort of request for temporary measures, where we, we have very politely asked the Dutch government not to do anything um, by way of denying access to basic accommodation and shelter for irregular migrants that might deny individuals fundamental, um, their, their human dignity if they're shoved out in the street. Um, so this remains a sort of ongoing set of legal issues. Um, it's been interesting to see how the debate has played out in the Netherlands in response to our findings. The Dutch government, coming to the end of my talk, but the Dutch government has very, very, very strongly reiterated the view that we have that the committee's legal analysis is incorrect, that the, the committee should stick to the explicit wording of the text, that the social charter is effectively a commutarian instrument, is never designed to sort of establish universal social entitlements. Interestingly, however, um, various municipalities in the Netherlands, including Amsterdam, Utrecht, Leiden, and Delft, in my most recent understanding, have actually taken a radically different view to the Dutch government on this and are applying their housing shelter policies by reference to our decision in the Defence of Children International Complaint. They take the view that the Dutch government, they effectively are taking the view that this is an international human rights standard which the committee has set out, that organs of the Dutch government should respect. And it's not so much that they're in open conflict with the Dutch government, this is sort of a polite disagreement, but the municipalities within their own autonomous powers are choosing to use their local authority powers and choosing to apply it by reference to the committee's jurisprudence. Um, 
So this remains a sort of open issue, so to speak. Um, and, uh, and it'll be interesting to see how this develops in, in, in the time ahead. I have to say that most countries have taken the view, um, haven't contested the Commission's case law in this respect. They've taken the view that the social that logically everyone does have some sort of entitlement to a basic level of, 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 of access to fundamental services. But certain countries, in particular the Dutch government, are still pushing back very, very strongly. So we're in the middle of a, a rather interesting legal battle. Very briefly, what does this all have to say to us? Um, firstly, international human rights standards um, are often quite limited in the field of migrant rights that aspirational language is often cut down or restricted, with the appendix of the Social Charter being a very interesting example. Secondly, the trajectory of development of international human rights law sits uncomfortably with these restrictions. We were able to back up our decision in the Defence Children International case by reference to jurisprudence in the European Court of Human Rights, various UN bodies, various national bodies, and so on. So there's a tension here between the development of universal human rights norms in law and the sort of restrictions that exist in this context. Um, the impact of these evolving human rights standards and how these tensions play out very much depends on political and legal factors specific to different countries, and their openness to international human rights norms. Um, and finally, I think the clearest thing of all is that the the legal impact of these standards is heavily influenced by the underlying political dimension. I mean, I have absolutely no doubt that our decision, Defence Children International, would have disappeared into the wind if the municipalities in the Netherlands and campaigning Dutch NGOs and campaigning Dutch lawyers hadn't actually seized upon our decision quite actively and used it in quite an activist way to challenge... Dutch government policy and legislation in this regard. And they've actually used it in a very, very effective way. So it's an interesting example of, of both the limits of human rights law in this context, but also its, its possible potential in the right condition.